HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, sometimes it's not the new and sexy that we should be looking to. With thousands of books, recipes, websites, Instagram profiles, and blogs to read, I often find it overwhelming to decide what to look at. And of course, the longer I live, the more ideas and techniques I learn and I have in my own head. I sometimes feel like it's a never-ending checklist of things to make and taste and learn to make. Yet perhaps this is really a mistake. Maybe I should make the same things over and over again and get better at them. Of course, these two ideas are not mutually exclusive methodologies, and we can try new things while having a personal culinary canon. My guest today is David Leet, and his site, Leet's Culinaria, is a treasure trove of recipes that should be in your canon, or at least on your radar. He's been at it for 20 years, which makes his one of the longest-running recipe sites around. He's won numerous awards, including two James Beard Awards. His cookbook, The New Portuguese Table, covers the food of his childhood, growing up in the Portuguese immigrant community of Fall River, Massachusetts. But his blog covers so much more than that. I love finding out about resources like this. I have to be honest, it was not on my radar at all before I started preparing for this interview. Reading just the first page of the blog covers things that I've been thinking about this week. Pesto, Bachelor's Jam, which I've made a few times over the last 15 years, and I love to make when I remember to put the season's fresh fruits into alcohol, starting in the spring and bottling it for winter gifts. But it was the article originally published in 2007 about searching for great fried clams in a 64th Thunderbird that led me to know that I was home, so to speak, and that this was a place I needed to really spend some time. Thanks, David, for joining me on Feast Your Ears today. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, I want to jump right in and talk about sure. the fried clam adventure. Please. Uh, tell me about how that came about. So that was, it's an article that is, was published on your site this week. Uh, this week, and it's a, it's a repost of something I did for the New York Times. Got it. Uh, which won a Beard Award. And uh, 
I remember I wanted to write about fried clams. I love fried clams. I grew up eating fried clams. And uh, so I approached my editor, which back then was Pete Wells. Sure. And he's like, yeah, if you think you can do it. And then a friend of mine had a 1963 Thunderbird convertible. So we decided to start at the very south, southern tip of uh, Connecticut all the way to the northern tip of Maine all along the coast. And we ate at every clam shack that we could find. Sure. And it was an extraordinary experience. Uh, it sounds wonderful. When I was in college uh, in around 1995 or so, mm. a friend and I were talking about coastal foods. And mm -hmm. I had spent a lot of time in Maine as a child. Um, my favorite fried clams is actually was from a place that no longer exists called Cindy's in mm. Freeport. I don't okay. know if you made it there. I, I, I do know it. I do know it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Cindy's is no longer yeah. in existence. Uh, but it really, they made incredible fried clams. And I have a story about those that either I can tell or we can do a separate time. But a friend and I had this idea. He was from outside D.C., Mm -hmm. and spent a lot of time on the Chesapeake. And we talked about this idea of Route 1 as this mm -hmm. corridor, both on the East Coast and the West Coast, because exactly. there's a Route 1 on either coast that runs north-south, of seafood. Yes. And that you could, you know, create this kind of thing of, like, trying to stop at every single seaside shack you yep. could yep. and track what food gets eaten or fried, starting in Maine with clams and down through New England and then getting to crabs and then further south and then to oysters and on and on and on. Yeah, and I was in search of the great big fat belly clams. Sure. I don't like the small ones. I don't like clam strips. I want this big fat profanely big belly yeah. clams and uh, so that's what I was after and I learned a lot of things about it yeah. on the way yeah definitely you know it uh, that article certainly brought me home mm -hmm. in a way mm -hmm. um, and and it is something that's harder and harder to find as it is a product as you pointed out it even is. 12 years ago is something that uh, the vagaries of weather Yes. And pollution. Yes. Um, and then also just sheer cost and how many of these places are still in business mm -hmm. doing that kind of seaside cooking. And people don't really realize, too, the differences because on, on um, in Massachusetts along the, the Cape, that's all sand. So it's very sandy versus the mudflats up right. in the northern part. So there's a different flavor that goes on sure. with that. And it's more, to me, I love the ones up north. They're more earthy. They're more, they just have a, a greater, deeper flavor. And, and traditionally, in my experience, and, and what, we're, what we're really talking about here, for those of you listening, is what are sometimes called softshell clams, or when I grew up, we colloquially refer to them as piss clams. Piss, piss clams or steamers, yep. yeah. steamers. Exactly. exactly. Um, and, so, and they really are from a very specific, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know how far south they actually live. I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. I've always, I'm a New Englander. That's where sure. I was. That's, that's my world. <laughs> that's what I know. Yeah. So you grew up in Fall River, I did. Massachusetts. Fall River and Swansea, yes. And Swansea, yeah. Uh, and in a Portuguese community yes, there. Yeah, very Portuguese. One of the largest in the country. Yeah. yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about what that was like. I mean, why did the Portuguese end up in Fall River? Because of the whaling in New Bedford. So all the, uh, most of the Azorians, because actually it was the Azorians who taught um, the Americans how to whale. Mm. And so they were bringing them over and uh, you get that in Moby Dick. There's sure. the Portuguese. And so that's where they, they started going. And the women were very good at um, fabric and, and sewing and, and, um, and needlepoint and stuff like that. So the, the women had work there. The men had work there. And so when my grandfather came over, there was this great exodus that was going on. And so he came over, in, I think, in 19... 1919 or 1920, my mother's father, and um, typical immigrant story, came here, saved money, sent it all back every week when he got his paycheck. After years and years of doing that, ready to move back home, and when he moved back home now with two boys, realized that his brother-in-law had drunk all of his money. Wow. 
and there was nothing. So he had to start back there. Oh my gosh. So he went back to the Azores. To come to back come to back. America. Wow. Yeah. So he wanted his big thing. He foresaw that the Azorean pineapple, which are very small, they're about this big, incredibly sweet, was going to be something big. And they are now. They're DOP. And um, they're an extraordinary, extraordinary fruit. And he wanted to do that. And uh, so when he got back there, he realized he had to get himself back to America. So he worked just to get enough money to come back and rebuild his life again for the second time. And my dad came over in 19... My mom met my dad over there because uh, she was born here in 1958, and they came over in 1959. Wow. Yeah. That's a, I mean, and it, I think that it, to me, so my mm-hmm. wife is from Providence and right. from that area, Fall River sure. is right next to Providence. It is. And, you know, the I had never really had a sense of, of there being Portuguese communities. I mean, mm-hmm. I grew up in the greater New York City area. I can't, you know, there's no little Portugal. Right? No, there's, there's no, no little Portugal. Well, there is a Newark. <laughs> there is across the way. Indeed. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, when I was a kid in the 80s, we didn't really go to Newark. No. Yeah. <laughs> Understandable. I, I do. But yes, Ironbound has really great Portuguese It has, stuff. and it's Indeed. grown tremendously. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but I didn't really know that much about it. And so then I started traveling up there and, mm-hmm. and my wife's best friend, who's the godmother of our, of our children is from Cape Verde, okay. uh, speaks Portuguese. So a lot of Portuguese food in that family. And yes. I started to really come to understand about things like salt cod mm-hmm. and how you cook that and linguisa and sweetbread, yeah. um, and all these sort of Portuguese things that yeah. are delicious, but I don't feel like I've really, really haven't quite made it into the American canon the way no, other European foods have. Now, and I have a funny feeling, an idea why, theory, is that when the Portuguese came, they were fishermen. The women were working in the mills, because the Fall River Mills. Yeah. So they didn't set up, they already had work when they came. They didn't set up restaurants. A lot of immigrants set up restaurants. So therefore their culture gets immediately, um, there's this, 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 everyone comes and they just get spread out through the American community. They didn't. So therefore when they came home, it was very cloistered. So you, you ate it at, at home. It was actually anathema to eat at a restaurant. I mean, if my father knew that I was eating at restaurants when I was a kid, he would have killed me. That's, you don't do that to your mother. You don't do that to your grandmother. That's an insult. Sure. And you go to Portuguese churches. you wouldn't churches. come home for dinner. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And you don't, you don't eat at your, friends, your American friend's home. You don't do that. And you go to Portuguese churches. You go to Portuguese festas and festivals. You go to Portuguese everything. And so it was very insular and very isolated. And um, so I think that's the reason why a lot of people don't know about Portuguese food. Hmm. Um, for you, what are the kind of like, I don't know, what are, what are the most important ingredients or things in a pantry for Portuguese food? Uh, salt cod, for sure. That's used a million different ways in Portugal. Look, great, wonderful, earthy, Swedish, sweet-like potatoes. Not sweet potatoes, but yeah. really good. Yukon Golds are the, the closest that I find to Portugal, uh, some of their, their potatoes. Uh, of course, churisu, which is the sausage. Linguisa is the sister sausage to that, or the cousin sausage. Um, uh, hot sauce, a little bit, not too much. We're not. It's not a very spicy um, cuisine. Now, if you're looking about Azorian Americans, they, they don't have things like cilantro. They don't. That's very much mm. the mainland, but cilantro is very much a big part of the Portuguese pantry. Um, masa de pimenta, which is a paste that's made with sweet bell peppers that have been salted and then just shaken off and ground up. Uh, there's also masa de pimenta, which is the the hotter version of that, which you find more in the Azores. Um, those are some of the, the big ones. And of course, vegetables, tons of vegetables, but we never eat vegetables as a side dish. They're always put into soups. 
That's we really do not have side dishes. And huh. if you go to Portugal, you want a salad, you're going to get some just some green lettuce and a couple of yellow, uh, a couple of red green tomatoes. That's what they serve. And then <laughs> there's that they love that sour sweet of the of that kind of a tomato. So those are some of the things you'll find in the pantry. Fava beans, very big, um, also, but dried, almost always dried. Um, and what else? Those those are the big things that I can think of um, growing up. Yeah. When I think of, when I think of Portuguese food, and I don't know if this is just because of my you know limited experience with mm-hmm. it, I think of uh, sausage and clams being cooked together. Huge, and Huge. and it's one of those things that I always think of, and I think it's like an absolutely genius combination, mm-hmm. and I don't understand why we don't see it more. It's it's a quintessential mainland dish. You don't really see it in the islands, yeah. so I never grew up with it. I never knew that existed until I went to Portugal, but it is a quintessential dish, and um, we actually just put on my version on the site. It's going to go up, I think, this week for my cookbook, and it's just, it's exquisite. They, in Portugal, they deep fry the pork chunks, and they deep fry the potato, um, mm. and we don't do that. In my recipe, we kind of stew the, the pork, and then we, uh, we bake off the potatoes, but uh, it's just an exquisite combination. And also the same thing with sausage, and uh, which is pork, and clams. Right. You get that in a cataplana, which is sure. like a, a wok with a wok on top. Right. That's what it looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, let's talk about sweetbread. Sure. Now, Masa I, I came to learn about Portuguese sweetbread because mm-hmm. of my wife and her family. And whenever mm-hmm. anyone comes to visit us in New York from Providence or from Rhode Island, that right. region, they always bring us sweetbread. Yes. And the sweetbread is, you know, it, what it reminds me of, at least sort of texture-wise, growing up Jewish, is like challah, challah. but much sweeter. Yep. It has it's way the... more sugar in it, more egg, yep. more egg yolk. It's like bright yellow, but the loaves are enormous. It's like if you took a <laughs> like 12-inch record yeah. and just made that into a cylinder, you're mm-hmm. talking about a loaf of like the sweetest, softest bread yeah. that's about six inches tall and about 12 inches across it's exquisite and i always call it it's the portuguese it's the portuguese challah yeah. and and or portuguese brioche but much yeah. sweeter and uh, i have memories of my father's mother vavo late who um would make this in with her three daughters they would make loaf after loaf after loaf with this and the entire kitchen would be filled with them and they're putting them in the pans and and it's very much a uh, uh like a, an assembly line where one does the egg one does the flour and they bake them and uh, they're exquisite and during easter i'm sure you've seen them with the easter eggs in them yeah too. with the eggs baked right into exactly the which i always thought was the coolest thing in the world so uh yeah that's that's something and, and what's wonderful is to be able to make uh, french toast out of it too letting it uh, stale a bit and make yep. french toast which yeah. called habanada and uh, they're exquisite. Yeah, it's it's the best. And and what I would recommend to anyone, if you are going on vacation to anywhere in New England this summer, mm-hmm. uh, and you pass by an Ocean State job lot, which is a <laughs> like particular Rhode Island kind of discount yes, store, is. Yes, it is. every Ocean State job lot has a rack in it, whether it's in Maine or Connecticut or mm-hmm. Massachusetts or Rhode Island, and it will have Portuguese sweetbread. Absolutely. And do yourself a favor and pick some up. Yeah. Uh, also, they usually have a large selection of Bob's Red Mill products, and I just have to say, Bob's Red Mill is a big supporter of Heritage Radio Network, so I always it's think a great of company. Bob's and Heritage and Sweetbread when I go to the nah, stage. Bob's about. almost exclusively. <laughs> um, so, you grew up in your mother and your grandmother's kitchen. Yes, I did. And tell me about your mother's cookbook that you still have. Sure. Uh, when my grandmother, when my mother married, because see, we grew up in the same house. My mom grew up in the the it was a triplex basically we call them uh, um, uh, we call them tenements but they weren't tenements I mean the whole idea of this you know NPR uh, um, 
uh, shows that talk about tenements in the Lower East Side, I kind of gave it a really bad taste, but it, that's what we sure. called them was tenements. And there were three apartments, and it was my grandmother and grandfather on the first floor in the back, my godmother, godfather, and two cousins on the first floor in the front. We were on the second floor. The third, when I was born, was empty. And she grew up in that same one. So when my mother married and came back from Portugal, my grandmother, she wanted to learn my grandmother's dishes. So she had this um, old-fashioned green faux leather a telephone book with an address book that right. you write in. So like letter A is one recipe, letter B is another recipe, letter C, and I still have it. And she has the, the ingredients is in uh, red ink and then the instructions are in black ink. And wow, that's so particular. Uh, I like it. That's my mom. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she doesn't follow any of those recipes. She never followed them. Even once she got them, she never followed them. But um, I still have that. And that's uh, a real treasure for me to have that. Are there any recipes that you remember or foods you remember eating in your childhood from that kind of uh, family Azorian history that mm-hmm. are hard to reproduce? At yes, this point? as a matter of fact. Well, first of all, growing up as a kid in America from Portuguese, um, Portuguese roots, I wanted to be blonde hair and blue eyed. I wanted sure. to be the adopted kid of uh, uh, Darren and Samantha Stevens. That's what I yeah. wanted. I wanted to be the bewitched kid. Um, so I hated Portuguese food growing up. And, um, but one of the dishes that I did like was my grandmother's uh, chicken soup and it was chicken and rice and potatoes. But for some reason it was pink. It was her favorite color was pink. None of us know what she did (laughs) to be able to make it pink. I've tried putting some wine in there. I've tried putting a little bit of, uh, paprika in there. We've tried everything and none of us can figure it out. We even thought maybe it was the dishes because the dishes, which I have are white with pink flowers. We thought maybe that kind of gave it a pink cast, which it doesn't. Um, so that's really impossible to make. And also her stuffing her what's called um which is portuguese stuffing um no one really makes it the way she does it's just that was those things that are, are lost to uh to time which is actually how i got into food writing i realized that when she passed away in 1992 uh that i asked my mom for some recipes my mom gave me those versions and they just didn't taste anything like what i'd had and i realized oh my god i think what's going to happen is I'm going to lose this connection. Right. And that's when I became interested in Portuguese food. And I wrote my very first article for the um, Chicago Sun-Times about, this is back then in the day, videotaping your mom or your aunts or your dad or whatever, making dishes. But in doing that is when a lot of family history started coming out. Huh. And that's what started me on a very long process of writing the book, the yeah. cookbook. Amazing. I mean, my mom tells a similar story of growing up, uh, you know, the child of Jewish immigrant parents Mm -hmm. and feeling like, you know, the foods she was taking to school for lunch were not the same as the waspy kids and, you know, and and that kind of thing. And then my mom and my aunt have told me stories about standing there with their mother and they're actually their grandmother and trying to sort of catch her while she was making stuff to weigh and measure the foods because she didn't measure anything. And it, you know, my aunt has very careful, you know, when she was a teenager and my mother was in her 20s, they took very careful notes and weighed things and measured things as their grandmother was cooking. And the dishes don't come out the same. They don't. My my mother does it by eye, did the same thing. And I would stop her and say, let me weigh that. She, no, no, no. That's just what I do. And she throws it in before I had a chance to weigh it. And the next thing I know, I never got it. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio Network. Um, But when we come back, we'll keep talking about uh, Portuguese food and your cookbooks. Great. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. 
My name is Korsha Wilson, and I'm the host of A Hungry Society here on HRN. A Hungry Society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food, and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out A Hungry Society wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. My guest today is David Leet of Leet's Culinaria. You should definitely go and take a look at his site. It's leetsculinaria.com, or for those of you who don't want to spell that out, it's lccooks.com. So there's two C's in the middle there uh, that will take you to the same place. You can follow him on Twitter uh, and Instagram at David Leet, D-A-V-I-D-L-E-I-T-E. Before the break, David, we were talking about Portuguese food yes. and growing up uh, uh, in the immigrant community in, in Fall River, Massachusetts. Um, parents are from the Azores. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about your cookbook. Okay. Um, and sort of, you know, how the new Portuguese table came about and what does that what does that mean what is the, the why is the portuguese. title new i know it's because my editors didn't want to do another portuguese cookbook and so they wanted something different <laughs> got it and so they said let's do the new portuguese cookbook and what it is is there's basically three stanchions in it there's the family classics that i've had growing up there's just the traditional dishes and classics and then also what was new going on when i wrote the book which was now i think what 10 years ago is yeah. when it came out and um so it was what was happening there and there was this explosion culinarily because don't forget spain had already exploded yep and so the portuguese were just going over there and learning so much about all this and they were bringing back to portugal and there was this big diaspora where they went out throughout the whole world to learn but so many of the portuguese chefs almost all of them came back to their own country. So they brought back all these techniques, all these flavors. And I wanted it to reflect some of that too. So right. there's family, there's classics, and then there's the contemporary. Nice. Um, and is there a, is there a, like, if somebody is interested in mm-hmm. hearing this and thinks, oh, I've never really cooked Portuguese, is there a dish that they should start with? Um, if they, uh, if they like, maybe, maybe think they like salt cod, but they don't want to go full yeah. blown salt cod, there's something called, um, Buglia de Minha Infancia, which means um, salt cod of my infancy, which was basically, uh, it, it was uh, potatoes that were whipped with salt cod and yep. a lot of milk and a lot of butter. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful entry in. The pork and clams is in there, and that's definitely something worth going for. There's a, um, a tortilla or a frittata, which is uh, with the sausage and the potatoes, and that's something is a very easy way in. There's nothing kind of, there's octopus in there, there's squid in there, but um, I didn't go too like too crazy on stuff because yeah. you know we, this tripe tripe is really big in Porto. Yep. Try to get that by an editor back ten years ago. Right. Oh, let's I need to do a recipe <laughs> on tripe. No, you don't. And as far sure. as salt cod, I think I could have three or four salt cod recipes. Right. I had to fight for those. Right. Um, I mean, so. to me, I, you know, I, I would encourage people to go and and work with salt cod um, yeah, and use it. Great. And to me, every time that I that I cook with it or every time that I eat it, I think about the history of it mm-hmm. and the fact that you know. Cod was something that the fishermen from Portugal, from Spain, mm-hmm. were going out into the North Atlantic, coming almost all the way to Massachusetts to catch yes, they were. hundreds of years ago, and then drying it, because that's how you kept it. Yeah, salt could, and there dry. Was no, there was no then, freezing, so yeah, they had to salt, salt and, and dry, dry it, and bring it all the way back home. And bring it all the way back home. And then you see it showing up, I mean, you know, a sort of 
dark part of the history being mm-hmm. with the slave trade, but you see it show up in all these dishes in the Caribbean, which is exactly. where I first encountered it. My yes. father was born in St. Thomas. Mm-hmm. So I first encountered it in Caribbean cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like, you know, it is a it is an awesome ingredient. You don't have to take up space in your fridge. No. You can buy a piece of salt cod and you don't have to, if you forget to cook it for a week or two, it's going to stay in it's the exact fine. same state. <laughs> yeah, totally absolutely. Fine. And what's interesting is when you go to Portugal, I don't know, 20 years ago, the idea of fresh cod was so weird to Portuguese. To actually go to a store and buy cod, you have to cook right then and there. Right. It was so odd to them. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your second book. Sure. Um, which is not a cookbook. No. Although, and I, and I have not read it yet, but I, I'm sure it covers a lot of food. It does. Um, but it's not a cookbook. It is a, a personal memoir called mm-hmm. Notes on a Banana. Mm-hmm. And that was your mother's nickname for you. The banana. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. So tell, tell me about that book. Sure. It's uh, the subtitle, and I think that kind of explains it, is A Memoir of Food, Love, and Manic Depression. Okay. So I am bipolar, and I'm queer, and I am Portuguese, and I love food. And so it's about, it's about three, three threads of my life going from not accepting to accepting, which is being Portuguese and not wanting that and going through this whole... I think it was finally about 38 years until I finally embraced my, really embraced my heritage. The idea of going from realizing at a very early age that I was gay and going through all kinds of stuff and going through conversion therapy and everything mm. to right, finally come around. because the community was very Catholic. Very Catholic. Right. And, and, and as you pointed out, I'm sure not just the idea that you wouldn't go to a restaurant because that would be something that would be terrible to your family. Yes. The idea Do of all the other gay. things being queer, all that. It does not work. So there was that journey. And then there's also the journey of this thing that had haunted me since I was about nine or ten years old. And I knew I was somehow different than other people, the fears that I had, these spells that I would go into, uh, which were depression, but I didn't know back then. I was so defended against it. And my family just were oblivious. They didn't know what to do with me. And going from that period all the way to age 36 until I finally, finally diagnosed myself and Mm. then realized that's what it was and went to a doctor and I said, look, I just need to find out if this is what I have. And I was diagnosed by two doctors as being a manic depressant. And so it's those three journeys of from not acceptance to self-acceptance and understanding myself and and, and just being okay with who I was. Yeah. So as someone who loves food, uh, I understand that you're currently on a keto diet. (laughs) Well, I am and I'm not. I am okay. and I'm not. <laughs> well, that's sort of how the keto thing works as I understand it, <laughs> Today right? is the not. But uh, yeah, I, I was doing keto, which was very hard because, yeah, you know, meat is great and, all, you know, yeah, and cheese is great and dairy is great, but you do crave the carbs. And when you're Portuguese and there's all those great carbs, like with the stuffed cohogs we were talking about and your mom's potatoes and... It's wicked hard. Yeah. It's wicked hard. That's your fall river coming out right there. <laughs> yeah, wicked hard. <laughs> um, let's talk about your site. Sure. Um, so you started it 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Which, I mean, you know, for for those of us that remember a time before the internet, yeah. uh, 1999, that's very early. Very. There were four the sites internet. that I knew of. Epicurious, uh, then the Sally's Place, which is still around. And fatguy.com, which mm. was Steve Shaw, who yeah. then went on to create eGullet and other things and wrote several books. He, he's sadly since passed. And uh, then my site. And that's the only sites that were out there. And we did something that was so radical that pub- the publishing industry didn't know what to do with us. We started requesting recipes from publishers so we could put them on the site from cookbooks. And they're like, well, wait a minute. If you put them on the site, no one's going to buy the book. And I said, no, you're really short-sighted. We yeah. put them on the, the internet. People are going to become so interested, they can't help but buy the book. Right. And I fought with publicity manager after publicity manager. And I finally won out. And... Uh, 
And so we were the very first website ever to do that with cookbooks. And uh, then now, I mean, everyone does it, but uh, right. we were a pioneer <laughs> course, back yeah. then. Well, and, and, you know, in my intro, I sort of allude to the fact that, you know, we always are obsessed with the new. Right? Yes. The, the news cycle is obsessed with what the new thing is or mm -hmm. what the new hip cuisine is or, uh, you know, new hip website that somebody has written or, That's right. or new chef. And I think that looking at these resources, I mean, you know, I go back to the New York Times cookbook or The Joy of Cooking uh, or Me Mastering the Art of French Cooking, at, you know, as many people do. And so I think we've now entered a period of time where there are a few sites like yours, mm -hmm. which are so big and vast that they really should be in people's radar as far as that yeah. kind of canon goes. And one of the things I'm really proud of is that from almost the very beginning, we had a recipe testing staff. And now we're like 150 testers. And everything's tested over and over and over again. And, um, and many cookbooks don't make it through that. They're gauntlet. They're, they're tough, these testers. Um, so um, we put up, and, and if we find that there's a problem with the recipe, we will pull it back. Yeah. We will work it. We put it into triage, and we put it back out. I think, I mean, and I, I respect that a lot. I think that's really important because I think that one of the big problems on the internet, right, is that yes. you do a search for something and you find a recipe, you have very little way of knowing if it's any good. And exactly. certainly you have peer reviews, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you have people who have reviewed on certain sites and things yes. like that, but that's not always the same mm -hmm. as real recipe testing. No, it's not. And no. I really appreciate that you put the comments. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, on the Bachelor's Jam recipe, for instance. Yes, you they're have, all there. There are a couple of testing comments there yes. from people who've also used the recipe in different ways, mm -hmm. which I think is also really important yeah so when we get the recipe what's in, what's interesting is that our testers will then determine for us the editing staff what to do with that so therefore we'll put in a lot of extra variations that we start finding that they use or we will rewrite the, the instructions to be able to if there was sort of something that wasn't very clear in the, the original recipe clearing that up for our users because of what our experience with our testers has been. So there's always this self-burnishing aspect to it. We're shining it more and more as time goes on, and I, I'm really proud of it. And yeah. um, it's, I'm, I'm proud of what we've done. And I also really appreciate you know, that you are re, you're bringing back things that are relevant at a different time mm -hmm. in, of the year, mm -hmm. right? Yes. I mean, that you've brought back the, the fried clam yes. article, for instance, which is not a new article, but still no. has relevance. Now, have you edited that? based on whether or not some of those businesses are still around, or is it exactly the same um, I looked uh, really quickly yesterday, and I, everyone was still open from what cool. I saw. They, at least they were still listed on the, on the internet. Sure. Uh, on, on the internet. So, uh, yes, but then what we'll do is we will um, we'll go back and we'll do that kind of a check on yeah. recipes, and, on, on articles like that, and we'll add. The ones I haven't done, actually, and it's so, sorely um, late to do this for me, it would be a Lisbon, because I was back mm -hmm. in Lisbon last year for the first time in eight years so vastly different. And so the article that I have for Bon Appetit that I wrote years and years ago is seriously out of date. So I have to add a lot, a lot of that. But we're always trying to update stuff and we're always trying. We're, we're resisting trying to, to become hip and cool. I never was hip and cool. Look <laughs> at me. I'm not a hip and cool person. You know, so we don't want to like start doing hip and cool things. We just want to be able to do what we do and do it well and continue doing it. Yeah. And uh, that's delivering very solid, very good, very well-researched information. Well, and, and I really, you know, I, I love the fact that, like I said in the beginning, like when I looked at the front page of the site, it was all these things that are either things that are on my mind currently, mm -hmm. because I, I mentioned pesto because yesterday on my flight back from Paris, mm -hmm. I watched some sort of very um, fluffy 
food television thing. Because <laughs> we, were, we were sitting, we had to sit on the tarmac for an extra hour and a half when we landed at JFK, and uh-huh. I was bored, and I just put something on. But they were, you know, they were showing someone making pesto with roasted almonds, which I thought was an interesting twist on pesto. But my son mm-hmm. is allergic to nuts, so I thought, well, okay, could I do this with sunflower seeds instead? Oh, and cool. I was just sort of thinking about pesto and adding arugula. And then, of course, I clicked on your site first thing this morning when I woke up, and arugula there was pesto. arugula pesto. So, exactly. uh, you know, really hit the nail on the head for me about what I'm thinking of, but also about just cooking real yeah. food yeah. and cooking and eating real food. I'm not home. interested and never have been interested in sort of um, really trendy food or uh, uh, the whole molecular gastronomy, which is a wonderful and difficult thing to do. I've never been drawn to it. I like real food, food you can sit down, food you can share, food that you can make for your family as uh, an expression of love, of care, of kindness, because I think... There's something that happens when you make the food, but I think the most important thing is what happens around that table while you're eating. Absolutely. And people do forget that. I think what happens is the food becomes an end to itself. And yep. if it does, I think that's short-sighted. It really is about the, the, the connections, the love, the conversation, the arguments, whatever happens around that table. And the food is the grease for that conversation. And um, so that's how I've always approached food. Um, I just like real, honest, good food. Yeah, I think it's that it's that commensality mm-hmm. of coming together. And you're right, sometimes it's fighting. Yep, it is. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's smiling and sometimes it's celebration. <laughs> and sometimes it's the end of a day where you're really tired. Yeah. But, if but food is always on the table. Yeah, absolutely. So what have you seen in your 20 years mm-hmm. of running the site? Um, you know, are there things that you did, say, 15 years ago on the site regularly that people really were in tune with that now mm-hmm. just don't work anymore? Sure. There are a lot of things. Uh, we had a very um, vibrant food history section. And what I found was that at least my readers weren't that interested in it. Hmm. There are sites out there that do it very well. And so we decided to not put any more time and energy and money into food history and kind of stay more with recipes. Sadly for me, our recipes used to be very long. And I purposely did that because we would take all of the information and learning from the testers and walk you through each step. And we found that people just weren't going to them. They see too many steps. They said, we're yeah. not interested. So right. then we've been going through this very long process, a very sad process for me, of stripping out a lot of that stuff and keeping it very clean and very neat and then adding that down with the recipe testers. Got it. And so, therefore, we have that. And sort of below the fold and to use Yeah, so newspaper. if you want more information, you can find it. Yeah. But if you're just looking to step, 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 you're going to get it. We, we, don't, we don't go just, you know, one sentence uh, a step. I, I cannot do that. I just, there has to be some style and, and substance to how we do what we do. That's another thing that, that to me, is kind of sad. I find that um, we are, people are... As much as there's all this experimenting, people are going back to the classics, going back to sure. the simple, going, going back to that. So, um, we, you know, we're, we're really we're we're still searching for a great meatloaf recipe. You got a great meat? We need a great meatloaf recipe. We just we have never found one in twenty years that we just love. Speaking yeah. speaking of recipes like lost to history, when I was a kid, we had a, a babysitter slash housekeeper who was there, you know, to help to help helped my parents. They both worked full time, mm-hmm. and she would be there when my brother and I got home from school. Um, she grew up in South Carolina and her fried chicken recipe, which I do mm. not have, sadly, she passed sadly. away, was spectacular, and as was her meatloaf. Yeah. Um, her meatloaf had a hard-boiled egg in the middle yeah. of it. But what I remember about it and you know, is that it wasn't... The hard-boiled egg never ended up overcooked, so it must Isn't have been amazing? like... 
soft hard yes soft exactly cooked. i Just mean if you cut cooked. through it it must the, the yolk must have been runny when it started because yeah. it was never overcooked in the middle of the meatloaf yeah and it's it's that kind of those kind of things that i like and and while we have things like arugula pesto and, and really marvelous things it's it's some of that home cooking we have four major sections one is the arsenal which are recipes you just need to master it's that simple then one is weeknight winners things that you can make in an hour or so when you get home weekend projects which we really encourage you to bring your kids in and mm-hmm. learn how to make coco vin, learn how to sure. make um birth bourguignon or something like that pork and clams and then honest entertaining and i call it honest entertaining and that's the section is because you know all this frippery and foolery I, I don't i don't like and and so you get all these you know amazing things to do with that and this and you know why not just have honest entertaining entertain people with honest great food they will always come back for more. And the thing that people say about my husband and I's table and our home when they come is it's so incredibly welcoming that they just feel so welcomed into the home. And there's not this sense of, oh, I have to, I'm, I'm going to do something wrong. I'm going to pick up the wrong knife or the wrong fork, you know? <laughs> and we're in the middle of Connecticut, you know? Uh, and so it's, it's, I like that fact. And so that's why we call it honest entertaining. So what led you to Connecticut? Um... <laughs> I, I just I was a Connecticut a Connecticut Connecticut file uh, growing up. I always wanted to live there, and huh. um, so my husband when we first met, he was had, it all the time spent in traffic commuting between <laughs> Fall right. River and New York City. Right, and so he had a place when we first met in upstate New York in Barryville, which back then was really rural. Now apparently it's like this gay mecca, which mm. you know we had no idea back then. It's his fault, I guess. Exactly, he started it, and so when um, one day. I just was so unhappy. And he says, do you want to move? And I just started bursting out crying, saying, yes, I can't stand it here. <laughs> and so we visited friends in Connecticut. And um, he said, okay, it has to be no more than two hours outside of New York. And we were visiting friends in Connecticut. And I just said, I just love it here. And so we moved there, our, our, our weekend home. I'm there half the week. He's there in like three days. I'm there like four. And we have a place in the Upper West Side. But I just, I like the... Um, it's rural where we are. I mean, there's, there's, we have the organic mechanic, who's a mechanic and also an organic farmer. So right. we go in to get our car fixed, and the next bay over, you get your, your tomatoes. You know, and <laughs> I great. just think that's really kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the kind of you know, those are I think the things that you can find mm-hmm. in those um, smaller communities, and I think more and more you can find those things in smaller yeah. communities. Um, that we just don't get. And what I love is there's a lot of younger people who are going up there, not so much to our town, but other areas, and they're starting farms. And I think that's incredible. Also, like way up in, um, uh, oh gosh, it's up upstate New York. I can't think of the, the name right now. It's um, a general store that we did some cooking classes at. There's all these young farmers sure. and doing these amazing things. And I think that's very exciting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there there is a lot to be said for time in the city. We're definitely, my wife and I are trying to figure out how do we spend time in both places, yeah. right? We have a place in Rhode Island. It's like, how do we spend some more time there? Also spend time here, have our kids have the best of both worlds. Like I yeah. want my kids to know how to ride the subway. Yeah. Um, but I also want them to know what it's like to just walk into the woods. Exactly. And fish or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, well, David, thank you so much. It's been my a, pleasure. A, a real pleasure to have you on Feast Your Ears today. Is there anything new coming up? Do you have any books in the works or anything new on the site that people should be on the lookout for? Um, on the site, it changes daily. We publish yeah. content daily, republish content daily. I'm working on a novel. Don't know whatever's going to happen to that, but working on, on a novel. And uh, and that's uh, we are actually thinking of reviving our podcast, which is Talking mm-hmm. With My Mouthful. And uh, it was real popular, and and, uh, so we're thinking of reviving it. So we're not sure, so fingers crossed. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Everybody, please take a look at Late's 
sorry, Leitz Culinaria. Well, Leitz uh, is Portuguese. That's how they say it. Leitz <laughs> in Portuguese. Uh, lccooks.com. Uh, and you can find David on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, uh, David Leite. Uh, and on Facebook, it's David J. Uh, L-E-I-T-E. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at Heritage Radio Network. Dot org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is our 10th anniversary here at Heritage Radio Network. We're young compared to David's site, uh, but it is our 10th anniversary, and we do rely on listeners like you. Please become a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. We have lots of great uh, membership gifts when you become a member. Please take a moment to rate and review the show if you like it. Please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.